welcome you to Doxodeo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission, passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Chwaneka. So this morning, I felt the need to be very, very transparent with you guys. I'm going to admit something I've never admitted from this space before, so I hope you guys will have grace. But from time to time, um, not so much since we became parents, but from time to time, Maya and I like to watch cheesy spoof movies. Okay, I know that is not the bomb you thought I was going to drop, um, but before you judge us for the movie I'm about to reveal... We were young, we were foolish, um, but who of you have ever seen Zoolander with Ben Stiller? Has anyone seen Zoolander? I know there's some of you in here that have seen that movie. And, uh, and in this film, Ben Stiller plays a male model called Derek Zoolander. And, uh, and he ends up in the movie, it is the most ridiculous plot you could ever think of, he ends up foiling a dark plot by the fashion industry to kill the Dalai Lama. I know, this sounds like the kind of movie you all want to run out and see, but, but let me just say, please don't watch the film because it is a little bit dodgy. <laughs> but throughout this film, there's this underlying plot and this question that Derek Zoolander keeps asking himself, and he goes, is there more to life than just being ridiculously good-looking? That's what he's asking himself. And there's this one scene in the movie, and it does have something to do with my sermon, don't worry. But there's this one scene in the movie where he steps out and there's this puddle of water. And he looks into the puddle intently and he goes, who am I? And his reflection looks back at him and goes, I don't know. So, so really this morning, as, uh, as we speak about just this idea of who are we, I'm sure all of you, if I were to ask you, have at some point asked that question. Who am I? For the young guys and girls in the room, maybe you've had to decide what to study and what your future might look like. And maybe that was a huge question for you. And you're like, who am I? Who am I going to be? Um, and for some of us in our 40s and 50s, we are still asking <laughs> that question. Who am I? So, so you're in good company. And and the honest truth is, like Derek Zoolander, I'm sure we've all discovered that we don't actually know who we are. I, I think uh, maybe we've got some idea. I mean, after all, this is my life and my mind and my heart. And, and when I wrote the line, it's my life, I thought I'd break into song, but I thought I'd spare you from that. No, no. But it is now or never. But um, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So... So we've all got some idea of who we are, but today I want to definitively say to you, if you want to know who you are, then there is no one in this world that can answer that question as honestly and as accurately as the Father can. Why? Because He put you together, and He knows the future that He has planned for you, 
The, the problem comes in, though, when we start looking for the answer to that question in all the wrong places, from the wrong people, from the wrong sources. And, and I was just thinking to myself, as a young man, uh, which is like yesterday, um, I, I, used to, I used to keep asking this question, who am I? And, and it was hard for me because I came out of a very broken childhood and a broken home and and a lot of stuff happened there, and, and it was so hard as I had to navigate those things um, because the, the, the narrative that I had going in my mind is what people have shown me is that I'm unwanted or worthless or I've got nothing to offer this world. And more than that, my sin and some of my bad choices had me stuck in this spiral of guilt and shame and pain. And, and can I be honest with you? Occasionally, those voices are still there. I still hear those voices going, you've got nothing to offer. There's nothing. You, you're worth nothing. And, and really, to be really, really honest with you, when I was going through that, and, and even as, as early as a couple of weeks ago, there was confusion about who I really am and what God has made me for. Now, some of you are sitting here today, and maybe as I was saying those things, you've got a tension in your heart because you're sitting here going, you know what, there are aspects and there are things I hear, and there are, there are things that, that run through my mind sometimes that I know are, are not from God. There's this tension in my heart, and, and maybe God has dealt with some of the wounds that you've got and some of the things from your past, but, but there are still voices that you hear when you look in the mirror. You hear, you are not worthy. You hear, you need to hide certain parts of yourself from God. And, and really, today... We're answering that question, why does Jesus' death matter? His death matters because in his death and resurrection, we discover the truth of who we are, and we discover just how loved we are. So guys, I, I'm going to ask you, let's jump into the word, John 7. If you've got a Bible here or you've got the Version app, you can turn there with me. But we're going to go through the whole of John 7. <laughs> So I'm going to paraphrase just the first half, if that's okay with you guys, and then we'll jump into the second half and read it. But, but really, as we, as we get to John 7, we find Jesus, and he's walking in Galilee, and it's the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and we all know what that is, right? <laughs> no? Good, because I had to look it up myself. Um, but, but here he is, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's this incredible week-long celebration where the Jewish people all come with tents and they, they camp out in Judea and they set up these tents and it's the celebration of how God was faithful to them in the desert as they were making their way to the promised land. And they're all there to celebrate and, and Jesus is really staying away from Judea at this point. Why? Because the Jews are out to kill him. They don't like the stuff he's been saying. They don't like the stuff he's been teaching and and, uh, and really, the time had not come yet for him to be handed over, to be crucified. And, uh, and Jesus' brothers are there. Yes, Jesus had brothers. And uh, they're there, and they're going, you know what? Just go. Just go to Judea and do some big miracles and announce yourself, and everyone will be wowed, and, and they'll know you are the Messiah. And they're trying to egg him on, and they're trying to get him to go. And Jesus is just like, it's not time yet. And it's funny how, how for, for even Jesus' brothers, they didn't quite get the fact that it wasn't the miracles that Jesus was doing that were going to reveal his glory. It was his death and resurrection that would be the thing 
that would truly reveal that he was the Son of God. So Jesus goes and, and really he goes up to the feast. His brothers have gone up ahead. He decides he's going to attend it in secret. And as he goes to this feast, he's listening to people and, and he's listening to what they say about him. And people don't know that he's there, but, but he's listening. And some people are going, oh, this guy is good. Jesus is good. And others are going, this guy is a deceiver. This guy is a deceiver. The people, the people there had an idea of what Jesus should be like and what he should be doing. And, and other people were trying to inform who Jesus was. So, sorry, got a bit of a runny nose. <laughs> but despite what Jesus heard at the feast, he makes this decision and he goes up to the temple. And he knows people are, are saying stuff about him. But he goes up to the temple and he decides he's going to go teach there and and as he teaches, the Jewish leaders decide to attack his credibility as a teacher. And they have to attack his credibility. They, they're attacking his credentials because, no, he didn't necessarily go through the same teaching and go through the same learning as all of the other Pharisees and teachers of the law. But they couldn't attack him on his teaching because it was infallible. What he was saying and what he was saying to people was true. What he was saying was in line with the letter of the law. And he's teaching and, and people keep saying this stuff and, and eventually Jesus just replies and he goes, you know what? These words are not mine. They are the words of the one who sent me. And he continues by saying, he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. And, and here Jesus comes and he's definitively saying, the words I speak now and that I teach are not my words, they're my Father's words. And more than that, I'm not looking for my own glory. I'm here to glorify him. And it undoes half of the arguments of the people that are waiting there to try and seize him and take him away. And that's what we're going to pick up in verse 25 this morning. So if you've got your Bibles there, be at verse 25. I'm reading from the CSB. And it says, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, isn't this man, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he is from. Now, this was a, a popular misconception at the time, that when the Messiah comes, he would just appear one day and it would be this flourish and people would know this is the Messiah. So that's why they were saying this. As he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out and he says, You know me and you know where I'm from, yet I've not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. And it's this beautiful statement that Jesus makes because in this moment, there's no doubting that he is declaring himself to be the Messiah, the Son of of God. And, and then they try to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. However, many from the crowd believed in him and they said, when the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? In other words, they're just saying, you know, what Jesus is doing, nobody would ever be able to top that. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about him, and so the chief priests and the Pharisees sent servants to arrest him. And then Jesus said, I am only with you for a short time, then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. 
And then the Jews said to one another, where does he intend to go that we won't find him? He doesn't intend to go to the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? What is this remark he made? You will look for me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and most important day of the festival, this is the next day, Jesus stands up and he cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Can you hear Jesus speaking that to all of us today? If anyone, if anyone in this place is thirsty, if anyone needs to know who they are, come to me and drink, and you will have streams of living water flow from deep within you. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. When some from the crowd heard these words, they said, This truly is the prophet. Others said, This is the Messiah. But some said, Surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the Scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? So the crowd was divided because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him but no one laid hands on him. So there's this beautiful story where Jesus is just teaching in the temple and he's revealing truth and he's revealing the fact that he's the Messiah. And, and I, I can only imagine what it must have been like as he's standing there. He's teaching and he's, he's teaching truth, but where he'd just come from was the feast where people were going, this guy's a liar and he's a deceiver. And even in the midst of the temple, people are accusing him and going, who are you to think you can come and teach in this space. And Jesus comes and he, and he brings this word and, and he brings it in the midst of what everyone else's opinions over his life was. And I can only imagine what it must have been like. And I think even Jesus must have had a bit of a wrestling and a bit of, a bit of something happening within him in that moment. Despite what everyone around him thought and said, Jesus makes these bold statements about his heritage and who his father is, and, and many are drawn to him, and, and really they ask the question, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these? Why? Because he'd done miracles already. He'd done incredible things. The way he taught was so compelling, and, and on this final day of the feast, he, he makes that statement, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And do you know why that statement is so compelling? Is because the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles is where they would celebrate the entering into the promised land, entering into the promise of God. And here's Jesus and he's teaching and what he's essentially saying to him is, I am the fulfillment of all that God has promised. In me, you will find life you will find life-giving water, you will never thirst again, and you will know who you are. So really, if we have to understand the significance of the cross, because that's what we're speaking about today, is Jesus' death and resurrection, we have to look back to that very first story. Because Jesus is often referred to by theologians as the new Adam, but there was a first Adam, and you might remember that. And and really, we, we find Adam and Eve in this beautiful garden, and they're surrounded by beauty, and, and there's this open and free relationship with God, and everything in this garden is theirs except for that one thing, and that's the fruit on a single tree, the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And most of us have heard this story and, and really the enemy steps into that story and he sows seeds of discord and before you know it, the fruit's been eaten and sin has entered the world and where there was once this free and unencumbered relationship with God, there's now brokenness and consequence. But you know what? Even in the midst of that brokenness and consequence, do you know what I see? I see a story of a God who in that moment where his creation has literally turned its back on him, a God who fashions clothes for Adam and Eve. He makes clothes for them as he sends them out of the garden. And even when he sends them out of the garden, he does it so that the curse upon them won't be worse. And in that moment, what he speaks to them is a prophetic word. And the prophetic word that he shares in Genesis is this. He says that a descendant of Adam and Eve's will crush the snake under their feet and the snake would strike their heel. Can any of you guess who that descendant was? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. So what's beautiful for me about this passage is just God is essentially saying, I've got a redemptive plan in place which will deal with sin and shame and guilt and pain and will restore our relationship. And it is Jesus. And he had that plan right from the beginning. It's not like he was caught by surprise. And Romans 5.15 puts it this way. It says, for if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many? Adam might have messed up. Eve might have messed up. Sin might have entered the world. But how much more the blessing that has entered the world through Jesus? So really, right from the start, God had this redemptive plan and and the question was just this, how? How was Jesus going to accomplish this thing? How was Jesus going to do what the Father had said he would do? He was going to do a few things. He was, first of all, going to reconcile us with the Father. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Adam and Eve to enjoy an unencumbered face-to-face -face relationship with the Father and have that taken away? Well, Jesus comes and he restores that to us. We can now know God and we can know him intimately and we can enjoy a relationship with him. And, and what else does Jesus do? He deals with sin once and for all, the sin that has ravaged our lives and the world. But more than that, when he goes back to the Father, he sends us the Holy Spirit. He sends us a helper that is closer than anything we would ever know so, so that we can really be guided and filled and empowered for victorious living, but also so that we can not only identify with his death, but also with his life. So let me ask you this. Why is it important that Jesus died for us? Because we could not die for ourselves. And it sounds like such an obvious statement to make, but really we look at the Old Testament and it's littered with Israel's attempts to earn their own freedom. They tried over and over again to follow the law and earn God's favor and earn God's love, but they just couldn't do it. And neither can you or I. And Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that. And, and in dying, Jesus pays this once and for all price for all of us. We've been justified. We've been redeemed. And those two words, justification and redemption, we're just going to quickly unpack because justification, and some of you would have heard me say this before, it's, it's not the same as forgiveness. Justification says that stuff from before, 
it's not just written off. It's not just that God remembers it, but he's let us off the hook. It's, it's that it no longer exists in God's frame of reference when he looks at us. It's a complete wiping clean of the slate. Forgiveness says, I see what you've done. This is your sentence. I'm letting you off the hook. And justification says, when I look at you, I no longer see your sin, your past, your old self. Who I see is Jesus. Who I see is Jesus. He's not only paid for our sins, he's wiped them away. And whatever you've done, whatever you will do, it's never going to change God's countenance towards you. The way God looks at you will never change if you are in Jesus. Then we have the redemption part of what Jesus did on the cross. He redeemed us. And really, I've, I've mentioned this before as well, but, but the word that they use there for redemption is the word apolutrosis, which is a Greek word, which essentially means the redemption, the freeing of a slave. And it was weird, but in biblical times, if you were a slave, you belonged to your master. He could control everything you do. You had no rights. And also, while you were living with your master, all of your food and all of your board got added to the money it would take to redeem you as a slave. So you would never, ever, ever be able to earn enough to, be pay, to pay off the debt that existed against you in that space. So, so really, you ate on your master's account, you slept on his account, <laughs> And, and really, you could try to earn your freedom, but it would never come. And the slave's only hope of being free is if somebody with greater authority could come and pay the price so that they could go free. And today, I want to say to you, friends, we are that slave. We are that slave. Our efforts, our willpower, our hardest try on our best day could not pay the price for our freedom. But Jesus could. And on the cross, he becomes what we were so that we could become what he is. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if you ask the question, who am I? You are the righteousness of God. By going to the cross, Jesus justifies us, he redeems us, he pays the price, but more than that, he renders the power of sin in our lives null and void. Because while we share in his death, we also share in his resurrection. So if we read Romans 6 this morning, um, I love Romans 6, and there's this passage from verse 5 to 11, and it says, For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him for the death he died. He lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So if we died with him, then what does that mean? It means we are now dead to sin. We were raised to a new life in him, a life of unencumbered relationship with God, yes, fully justified and redeemed, yes. And because we're a new creation empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can live victorious lives. 
We don't need to drag our feet behind us. We don't need to drag the old man and who we were with us. So when I look in the mirror now, what I see is not that old man. I don't have to feel shame because when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of God. I no longer need to feel guilt because the price was paid and will be forever paid. Nothing can undo that. And the unaligned parts of my life, because let's face it, we've all got unaligned parts in our lives, will come into alignment as we behold God and his countenance towards us. And then I no longer need to walk around in the pain of broken relationship with my God. Just as it was in the beginning, it is again. We can walk freely with God face to face. So my question to you is this, because I know you've all got that question. I've been justified, but does that mean that I will never sin again? If you're asking that question, I think you already know the answer, okay? Yes, you will probably sin again. All that this means is that we are no longer unable to resist the sin in our lives. Our old man, who we were before Jesus, has died. Yes, we now have a new identity. Yes, one which has the power to say no to sin. We just read that Romans 6 passage, and I think the NIV says it in a really cool way. In Romans 6 verse 6, it says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So that old self that couldn't say no to sin is gone. We now have a body which can deny sin, and we have the Holy Spirit which can help us to walk out of that, to walk out of that for a life set free from sin and shame and guilt and pain. But you guys would remember the discussion today is not just about sin because that's not what we're here to talk about. It's a discussion about who we are and how we see ourselves. And today, I want to definitively answer something for you. I want to say something and speak it over you. You are no longer a sinner if you are in Jesus. I think there's this pervasive speech that comes out in in Christian circles where we all just keep saying this thing, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. But the beautiful thing is, if we are in Jesus, we are not a sinner anymore. You may occasionally struggle with sin. We all do. But the act does not determine your identity. Your identity is determined by what Jesus did on the cross and in the tomb. That is who you are. So uh, I've been reading a book lately, and it's called Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table. Catchy book, awesome book. And it's a book by Louis Giglio. And uh, he, he's sort of responsible for all the passion conferences, and, and he's a pastor of a church. And, and he writes this book, and he says one day he was so offended by someone in his church. He was so hurt by them, and he was so angry that he was texting a friend. And he's texting this friend, and he goes, you would not believe what this person so-and-so in the church did to me and what they said to me. I am so ready to just rip them a new one. I am so ready to just lay into them for their behavior. And and he was really expecting that this friend would text him back and go, oh, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry, or you're so right. This person needs to be put in their place. 
And all the person replied to him in that text was, don't give the enemy a seat at your table. And he says in that moment, he was just stopped in his tracks because he realized at some point the enemy had started speaking into his mind and into his heart when it came to certain people and certain situations, and he had willingly given him a seat at the table. And if you read through the rest of the book, it's all about Psalm 23, and it's all about that passage that says, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And in it, Louis Giglio, he speaks about the fact that, you know, in that psalm, what that line means is that, that the Lord will actually prepare a space that's meant for just us and him, a space in which he can speak into our lives and into our reality. And he says, the sad thing is what we often do with that table is we draw up another chair and we invite the enemy to come and sit at it and to inform the way we think and the things we think about ourselves and other people and situations in our lives. And I think that's, that's essentially what he's speaking about there. And my question to you today would, would simply be that, where have you given the enemy a seat at your table? Where have you allowed him to influence your thoughts and so seeds of destruction into your relationships, your marriages, your friendships, your thought life, your future. Where have you done that? One of the things that really stands out for me in today's John 7 passage, probably one of the things that stands out to me most is the fact that while many people didn't believe Jesus and they were speaking against him and they were speaking things over his life and, and they had opinions about who he should be and what he should do, it did not deter him at all because he kept going back to the Father to figure out, who am I? What am I called to do? What is my purpose? What is my future? And that made all the difference. If Jesus had started listening to the enemy or to the people in the temple, can you imagine what would have happened in that moment? So again, I want to ask you, whose opinion has become more important in your life than God's opinion over you? Because really, the way I see it, we have two choices at this point as I draw to a close. We, we can, number one, live a life sustained by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's that old nature. And it's living and saying, I'm just a sinner. And my life is a mess. And I am unworthy. And everything about me is wrong. And I'm full of sin and shame and, and guilt. And, and, and really, the thing with living this way is it's impossible for us ever to get free from it by ourselves. We can try to fix Adam's sin. We can try to qualify for God's favor and mercy and justice, but it's just not how God intended us to live. And one of the saddest things for me is when we've been set up for victorious living, but the enemy has us living as if we're the old man. That's just something we don't want to do. And the other option is we can live a life sustained by the fruit of the tree of life. We can accept what Jesus has done in our lives and, and that we're complete in Him. And we can decide to live in our new identity and live by the Spirit. And this becomes the point of departure for everything we do. Because if that's our point of departure, when the stuff comes and when the anxiety comes and the fear comes and the messes of life come, what do we do? We don't go to any rando. We go to our Father and we say, you know what, Father, what is this? And and how do I need to be victorious in this moment, even the hard moments? And who do you say I am? So really, I want to invite you, the next time you're looking in the mirror and you're trying to figure out who am I, 
there's, there's just this reality that, that mirrors are supposed to only show us who we truly are. They're not supposed to distort our face. I don't think that's what they're for. And when we look in that mirror, I, I pray that what you see is you see a son and daughter of the Most High God. I pray that what you see is someone who's been renewed and transformed and set up for intimacy with God. I, I pray that when you ask the question, who am I? 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it this way. It says, because he died, I am no longer a sinner. I am a whole new creation. So who are you? You're a whole new creation. You have a new identity. You now see Jesus as the definition of who you are. The gospel is not just the story of a Savior. It's the story of a Savior's impact on your life. Your identity has changed. You're a child of God. You are righteous in Him. You are forgiven. You have a restored relationship with God. You are living to your fullest potential in Him. And what is your inheritance? Victory is your inheritance. Amen? Amen. So I want us to go into just a bit of a time of prayer. And uh, I wonder if, if you can just put your hand on the shoulder of somebody next to you. And, and, um, and what we want to do is, can you just say the words, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Could you just pray that for the other person, that the Holy Spirit would come and speak to them now in this moment? Would come and just reveal greater truth to them? Holy Spirit, come. Yeah. Amen. Okay. So guys, as we just keep your eyes closed and just take a deep breath. <laughs> I asked you earlier about that tension that you have in your heart when I speak about the unaligned thing. When I speak about things in your identity, things the enemy has been speaking into your situation, your life, your marriage, your relationships, over your children, over your future, over your studies, whatever it might be. I wonder if you can just imagine for a moment in your mind's eye that, that God the Father or Jesus or the Holy Spirit is in front of you and, and there's a container. It can be anything, anything that you can pack something into. And just envision it there in front of you, and you're there with Father God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. You're there, and just start packing all of that stuff into the container. Think about the last time you looked in the mirror and what you believed and said over yourself. Think about the things that the enemy's been saying over you over your marriage, your children, your future? Can you just pack all of that stuff, all of that ugliness into that container that you have in front of you? Just keep packing it in. That stuff doesn't define you. It's not who you are. It's not what God has spoken over you. So just keep packing it in.
what I want you to do is as soon as you're done and that container is full and you've put everything in it that you want to put in there, would you put a lid on it? Would you close it so it can never open again? Close that container up. And if you're ready, would you just reach out to whoever's there with you, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, and would you just give it to them and put it in their hands? Would you just hand it over to them? Just hand it to God. Look at God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. And can you just, just ask them a question? Can you just say, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Who am I? Just sit quietly for a moment and just receive from God. Just receive whatever He says over you. you pray. I wanted to just be individual prayer with God in this moment and just speak to God and just say, God, thank you. Thank you that you declare good things over me. Thank you that we are the sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we declare in this place today that we are no longer giving the enemy a seat at our table because Jesus has done it all. We don't have to have shame or guilt or pain. We don't have to drag the dead body of our old man along with us wherever we go. And we declare that those things we have put in our container, those things we have now given to you, God, that is not who we are. That is not our identity. And who we are are the words that you speak over us. Would you give us the strength, God, to come back every single day for an, just a readjustment of who we are and keep ministering the truth of who you have made us to be in Christ Jesus to us. We love you, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen.